good to see everybody. Hope you guys had a great week in the Lord. This morning we are going to be looking at the um, portrayal and Passover of Christ. We're going to be in Matthew 26 if you want to open up there. And um, we'll get to our kind of icebreaker question here in a second. But let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful time for us to be together uh, to study your word. We thank you how your word uh, gives us what we need for our spiritual food. We thank you for the power of your word to convert our souls, to change our minds, to humble us so that we could not be resisted by you, um, but to find your grace. We thank you, Lord, that as we submit ourselves to you and resist the devil, he will flee from us. And that when we humble ourselves even just a little bit, we find your grace in our lives. And so we come to you humbly this morning, admitting our need and that we need your word. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so fill us now as we fellowship together around your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Hope you guys had a great week. One of the things we talked about last week, uh, we looked at Luke 4. What were the responses to Christ's ministry as we saw in Luke 4? And how do we account for those responses? So let's test for understanding. Anybody recall what we talked about last week? We looked at three responses to Christ's teaching and healing. Joe. Yeah, so one town wants to throw him off a cliff. What else did we see? Anybody know what town that was? Nazareth. Nazareth. There you go. Capernaum, Capernaum was the other one. They believed, and they wanted him to what? Yeah, they wanted him to stay. They wanted him to stick around. And then we looked at one other entity that also had a reaction to Christ. It wasn't a person. The devil. And so, great. So that's basically covers what we talked about last week. As the devil attempted to coax Jesus, Nazareth tried to kill Jesus. Capernaum wanted to keep Jesus. And one of the questions for us is, how can we be more like Capernaum than Nazareth? Right? So, um, yeah, so really good stuff. This week we began a new series um, called The Church Begins. Something happened with my little thingamabobber there. Uh-oh. This isn't going to be good. My uh, transparency, I made that background very transparent and like where you could barely see it. And now I can see it really good. It's going to block out all of my text. I don't know if you guys are able to get that transparent again, that background. Um, so anyway, we're going to be looking at Luke 26, we're starting a new series called The Church Begins. And in this series, we're basically going to cover um, the Passover. We're going to be looking at Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. We're going to be looking at Peter's denial. We're going to start moving through Pentecost and um, the first half of Acts, basically, all the way up to uh, Saul's conversion. That's what we're going to do over the next 12 weeks. So basically looking at Christ initiating, um, really uh, starting the church. So he's 
he gets the church rolling, and then he commissions the church to go out and preach. And then how is it that Christ cares for the church in the interim? Um, lots of really awesome stuff that we will cover. Um, so this morning, the big idea is we're going to be looking at Christ's um, instructions as we move into that Last Supper. So we're going to look at kind of like the Passover and then the Passover 2.0. When we say Passover 2.0, we're talking about the Lord's Supper and some of the goings on that happened during this this meal. And um, if you took a look at the curriculum, they've got like a few different chapters we asked you to look over for background. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 26. And so why don't we just start right there? I've, I've basically broken down. We're going to look at the first 30 verses. I'm breaking it down into seven portions that... Um, that involved this whole Last Supper, Passover thing. And we're going to start in verse 1 with a prediction. So let's look together and we'll make some comments as we roll. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples. The sayings that we're talking about are the previous three chapters basically called the Olivet Discourse where Christ has been answering the question, when, is, when are all these things going to happen? What's going to, what's going to be the sign of your return and so on? So then in verse 2 he says, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So this is the prediction. The disciples had heard this type of language before, uh, but Jesus is reminding them again, there's only two more days we're going to be heading towards the Passover, and then I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. Let's talk about, just for a moment, the Passover, the Jewish Passover. Um, this would have been in the Jewish um, month called Nisan or Nisan. It's around uh, March slash April on our calendar, but it's technically the first month of the Jewish calendar. And this kicks off. Um, really, there's seven feasts in the Jewish calendar, and the Passover kicks off the year, um, and it kicks off what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so there's sometimes it can be a little confusing when you're reading through the Old and New Testament. It looks like sometimes it seems like the Passover and Unleavened Bread are separate. Sometimes they talk about them as one. Sometimes Passover means the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes Unleavened Bread means Passover. So you're like, what is all this? And the long story short is, is when the Jews went up into Babylon and came back down, somehow the Passover and unleavened bread had got joined. And so the Passover is kind of like, almost like the night uh, before the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. And sometimes Jews would just think of them as just one big thing. And so the Passover is going to occur. And you guys remember, do you guys recall what the Passover was all about in the Old Testament, you Old Testament scholars? What do you guys remember about the Passover? Yes, sir. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, tell me your name again. Steve and Jeannie, Steve and Jeannie. Great. So Stevie has just reminded us that it's um, Pharaoh's 
uh, and uh, you know, with all the threat that he was bringing upon um, Israel and and uh, Moses there, what not letting them go. God had said he was going to kill the firstborn, but if the Jews would put the lamb's blood, or in some cases goat's blood, um, on the threshold of their doors, the angel of destruction would pass over instead of kill the firstborn, and um, and so that's and so that was celebrated uh, throughout the Old Testament, and then up to the time of Christ. They are getting ready for that Passover week. So that takes us to the um, so the prediction. Now let's look at plot number one, starting in verse three. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they gather together in this palace of the high priest, which is interesting. That's not really where uh, the Sanhedrin would normally meet. We know historically. And so some people ask, why are they meeting in the palace or home of the high priest? Probably for privacy or secrecy. And so they're gathering together to basically plot um, the capture and murder of Jesus. They want to try to do this in a non-public way because there are thousands and thousands of people in town for the Passover slash Feast of Unleavened Bread. So how can we do this in such a way to not rile up all the people? And so you've got this plot that's, that's going on against Christ. Which brings us to what we're going to call the pouring, verses 6 and following. And when Jesus, starting at verse 6, was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Um, Simon the leper, probably this is not that he was currently a leper, but that he had been a leper and had been healed. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't be hanging around all these people. Um, But he's showing Christ hospitality. And a woman, verse 7, came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. This woman almost certainly is Mary, um, the sister of Lazarus, also the sister of Martha. And um, as we compare to the other, the other passages, and, um, and then so she brings this alabaster. This is like a, a marble-like type of thing from Egypt. And um, a flask of other uh, other gospels tell us this is sparknard oil, very costly, very fragrant, 300 denarii. Remember, like a denarii would be the average wage for an individual at this time. So 300 denarii is almost a year's wages. So if you put that in today's terms, think, pick the average person's wage today in the United States, you know, this uh, almost a year's worth of wages uh, is how expensive this was. Uh, she um, puts it on his head at the table. Parallel passages, uh, if you look over at John, there is probably the head and the feet, but there's another completely different anointing where only his feet are anointed um, in front of a Pharisee. And so sometimes we can confuse those two, but it does seem like there's two different anointings. One is about six days before the Passover. This one's only two days before the Passover. Okay, so 
So, so, so there are two different anointings when you compare the, all the relevant passages. And so she comes and does this. Notice in verse 8, but when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might, might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So the, uh, the disciples are, are upset at the waste of oil being poured out. And it's hard to tell exactly wh- who are they upset at. Are they upset at Jesus? Are they upset at the lady? Are they upset at just the situation? Um, clearly, um, they feel like this is not appropriate. Um, the amount of that this oil would cost, how it could be used for the poor. When we compare this passage, however, to John 12, verse 4, we get a clue that the instigator is Judas. Because in John, it's Judas that vocalizes the angst. And then it seems like the other disciples join in. You guys know how that goes, right? You're driving around somewhere, trying to figure out somewhere to eat. All of a sudden, one of your more dominant children says, we need to do this. And then all the other children join in. Yes, yes, we need to go by McDonald's, not go there. And then now you've got this little mini riot on your hand that was all started by the dominant child, right? And so Judas has gotten everybody riled up because we all know that Judas really cares about the poor, right? No, we hear it. We see in the Gospel of John that that is not the issue. Let me flip through these slides real quick and get us caught up um, so you can see that we're moving into an, our new study. That's we already talked about. That's what we're going to be covering. By the way, there is no Sunday school next week, but I've already emailed you guys the lessons for the following two weeks after that. And um, so, yeah, so Passover and Betrayal, this is the passage that we're on. Um all right, so let's see Jesus' response in verse 10. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And we're reading about it in the gospel, so it has been memorialized that Mary, in all likelihood, the same lady that sat at the feet of Jesus, wasn't helping out Martha, right? She had the wherewithal to bring almost a year's worth of salary in this very expensive spikenard oil, pour it on the Lord. She seems to know something that the other disciples haven't caught on to, that Jesus is going to die. And she's willing to give up probably this ha- you would have to think this would be her life savings perhaps that she pours over the lord and then in the parallel passage also onto his feet and and so jesus does not rebuke her um he says we're, you're always going to have opportunities to bless the poor jesus is not telling them don't help the poor um but he is saying that there is something of value about love devotion and worship this does teach us, I think, a side lesson that goes beyond our full purposes for this morning. But it is not a waste to give of your wealth for the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and to give of, of your goods for his 
glory and honor. Um, we, we had some of these discussions even as we were praying about where to move and to move over here to Bournes. And some of what dawned on us is sometimes whenever we would start to look at a particular facility, you know, a lot of times the question would become, well, what will it be used for? Can we use this facility to do this good work and that good work and another good work? And somehow the idea of gathering together to worship God didn't seem like that was enough to justify the expense of a facility. I want to suggest to you that historically that's just not true and biblically it's not true. Look at all of the money that God called upon Israel to bring together in order to establish the temple. And the what is the main purpose of the Old Testament temple? Worship. So that God would be their God and these people would be his people. And yet God was pleased that great expense would be uh, would be exhausted on the temple. And, um, you know, we can talk about the theology of buildings and how that established, you know, that's another lesson. But I think the, the big idea is don't feel guilty about bringing your goods and your storehouse house for the honor of the Lord, however it is that the Lord may, may, uh, may call you to do that. Um, so so we so we have these in this opening section we see Jesus is predicting his um crucifixion there's a plot from the Jewish leaders about his death and then now a pouring of oil to prepare or to anoint him for his death and burial let's look at plot 2.0 uh that involves Judas starting in verse 14 then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, this is not accidental that the gospel writer has informed us of these facts right after the rebuke of the of the pouring of the oil upon Jesus's head. It does seem like Matthew is putting this in the historical order, uh, but he is also drawing attention to the fact that right after the disciples led by Judas is all upset about oil being poured on Jesus's head. He's now going and selling out Christ for 30 pieces of silver, which is not nearly the amount of cost of this oil. Um, so how much did Judas really care about the poor? Um, what was Judas's real intentions? And we find out in the parallel passages when you compare like Luke, you can write down Luke 22 verse 3 that when um, uh, Judas went off to, to plot with the chief priests, it says, Satan entered him. Uh, Satan entered him. And then when you compare it to uh, John chapter 13, uh, it says that Satan had already put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And, and then it seems that, that uh, as you track chapter 13 of John, that the exact moment of the entering of Satan would be when Jesus handed him the sop or the piece of bread. So it seems like Matthew's telling us, generally speaking, you know, he just says that Judas went out and plotted 
Luke tells us that it was satanic in its in its origin. John seems to give us the exact moment uh, that Satan actually entered him. It had already been put into his heart by Satan. Uh, do you guys remember that text in 13 where it's kind of obscure because when you compare all the different passages, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to really figure out what's going on and why some of the disciples don't seem to know why Judas gets up from the table and so on. Remember in John 13, they're all sitting around the table. Jesus says, I'm kind of getting a little bit ahead of myself. Somebody, one of you is going to betray me. And nobody knows who it is. You would think by this time, everybody, everybody's eyes would be like looking over at Judas, like out of the side of their we know who it is. It's that guy that's been robbing the, the treasury. Nobody knows. They all start asking one by one, probably because they all know their own sin, right? They had been, at some point during this whole trek, they'd been arguing about who is the greatest. And so they're all like, oh man, is it me? And then several of them start to verbalize that. Lord, is it me? Is it me? And then I love this scene. It, there's a movie... Um, the, have any of you seen the Gospel of John movie? Okay, the Gospel of John movie is really killer. But they, they do this scene, I think, pretty well, actually, to, to demonstrate why some people know and other people don't know at the table what's going on. Is John tells us that Peter is somewhere in the room, and he looks over at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's probably seated. He's definitely seated in the position of honor. Remember in Jewish dinners everybody's seated in a certain order so john is right there in the honorable position because he can lean in right on jesus's breast judas is probably in the next honorable position because jesus just reaches over and gives him the sop does that make sense so you have the most honorable and then the second honorable position which says something by the way about the way jesus is treating judas even leading up to his betrayal jesus washes judas's feet and then puts him in the second highest place of honor at the table. That says something. Um, wh whatever we want to say about the prediction of Judas and the fulfillment of scripture, Jesus is still reaching out to this guy that's going to betray him. And so anyway, so the scene is, is basically this. Jesus says, somebody's going to, one of you is going to betray me. And in this text, it tells us, they, they start asking, is it I, is it I? He says, it's the one who is dipped with me in this text. Well, that could have been anybody because they all had a common bowl. Throughout the evening, they had been eating and they all, you know, Jewish people, they all dip their bread. It's not like a soupy thing. It's kind of like a, it's almost like a hummus type of thing that they would have had. And so they're all dipping. By this point in the evening, every one of them had probably at some point dipped into the bowl with Jesus. So now they're still kind of like, Okay, is it I? They still don't know. At this point, comparing J John chapter 13, Peter's looking over at his buddy John, and he's kind of like, you know, like, hey, ask him. And so then it says John leaned in to Jesus. And so you get the idea that he's kind of like real close up, like whispering, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus says to John, it's the one to whom I'm going to hand the sop. The sop in Jewish culture and a Jewish meal is you would take a particular piece of bread, wrap it up, and you would give it to the guest of honor to say, I am particularly honoring you. And so at that point, John is probably the only one that heard this. Jesus grabbed the sop, he picks it up, and he hands it to Judas. 
And then Judas just seems like he just probably just eats it. Doesn't, he does not, there's no indication in the text that he's really aware of what has happened. The only person that knows what that meant is whom? John, which is why John's the only one that records it. Does that make sense? Nobody else records that particular detail. And so when John comes along to write his gospel, you'll notice you find a lot of material in John that's nowhere else in the other gospels. Why? Because John, his job was not to rehash everything that everybody already knew. He wanted to write things that people hadn't really heard about, except maybe through his preaching ministry. And so by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us that detail. He may have kept that locked up in his heart for years. Who knows? And then now it's coming out on the pages of Scripture so that we can all hear about it. So Jesus gives Judas the sop. And then he leans into Judas and says, what you do, go do quickly. Over, If you look over at John 13, which we're not going to turn there, when he re- handed him the bread, it says Satan entered him. That was the moment that Satan entered him. Up until this moment, theoretically, from a human perspective, Judas could have repented. Why do I say that? I mean, Jesus washed his feet. Jesus put him in a place of honor. Jesus gave him the sop as a, an indication of honor and grace. And then Judas takes it, eats it, no change of heart. Jesus knows there's no change of heart. So he says, what you do now, go do quickly. Jesus gets up or Judas gets up, leaves Nobody at the table, look over at John on your own, John 13. They have no idea what he's gone to do. They think that he's just got up to take the money bag to go give money to the poor or to go make some more preparations for the feast. By implication, the only other person at the table that would have known what that meant is whom? John. So John, the one who wrote the gospel, it's, it's implied that he's accepted from the ignorance. Does that make sense? But everybody else has no clue what has just happened. This accords with the Old Testament concept. How many times do we see in the Old Testament where prophets are prophesying judgment upon Judah or Israel? This is going to happen. You are going to die. But then if people repent, all of a sudden God turns. And so theoretically, if Judas would have repented, he could have been saved. But he doesn't repent. Satan enters him. He goes out. And then he fulfills scripture and begins to uh, uh, betray. So we've kind of jumped a little bit ahead of ourselves here. Let's let's finish up this. Um, well, we yeah, no, we did. Did we finish reading uh, to verse 16? That's what happens when preachers wax eloquent. Let's look at verse. Yeah. So let's look at a. Uh, um, Verse 15 again, and said, what are you um, willing to give? Okay, we just said that. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Um, so then verse 17, so let's move now into what we're going to call uh, the preparation, preparation for the Passover. Now, on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, so there's an example where the Passover is called the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it gets joined. Um, The disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you the Passover? Exodus 12. He said, go into a city uh, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. 
I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So didn't even tell us the name of this person, but it says, go to, go to this person's house. And notice he says, my time is at, at hand. So many other times before this, he said, my time is not at hand. Remember when uh, they were at the wedding and he's there at the wedding and, and all of a sudden his mom comes up like a good Jewish mother and says, uh, hey, um, they're out of wine. And then what does he say to his mom? Woman, my time has not yet come. And then she turns to the other people and says, whatever he says, do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> she already knew what kind of powers he had. Right? My, uh, at my house, sometimes, um, I, sometimes it, I, I have been described as a person who won't ask directly. I'll just say things like, boy, I sure am hungry. And then people like, well, what would you like? <laughs> so that's, that's kind of what uh, uh, Jesus' mother does in that case. But So the point is, uh, his time had not been at hand so often, but now he's saying, my time is at hand. It's time, I've, I've been betrayed. We are moving towards uh, this crucifixion. So the disciples, verse 19, did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. By the way, just as a side, so you guys kind of see how this fits into the, I don't know, I don't know if you guys can really see all those. There's seven basic Jewish feasts. Um, so the Passover kicks off the religious year. It's kind of weird in, in, in Israel today, there's a difference between the religious new year and the beginning of the new year. So the religious new year is Nisan and the Passover kicks all that off. So the way I've tried to memorize the seven feasts is puff we tat, puff we tat. Um, I thought I saw a puff we tat. I did. I did see a puff we tat. I just do weird things like that to help me memorize things. And um, so you got Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. So the the first three happen in a real tight clump, right? Passover and unleavened bread are the same week then first fruits kicks off the harvest then you have 50 days later you move to the the feast of weeks that's pentecost then you really don't have anything else until around september it's the seventh month for them for us it's around september or so and from a christian perspective what we have is the first three four feasts seem to talk kind of predict christ's first advent the back end of the feasts seem to have something more to do with christ second advent maybe we'll come back and hit the feasts at a later time um let's go back here uh so let's so let's move into the actual passover so verse 20 and following um when evening had come he sat down with the 12 now as they were eating he said assuredly i say to you one of you will betray me and uh, they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? It really, you can really uh, sense the sorrow and the heaviness in the room. Jesus keeps saying he's going to die. You have some lady who's anointing him for his burial. Um, and uh, they don't know it at this point, but Judas is out betraying him. And, and they're all probably sensing their own weakness 
so then he says, he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Here it's dipped, aorist tense. Um, I think it's in Mark or Luke. It has it dips. And this is probably because they're speaking Aramaic. And when you bring it back over to the Greek, you know, is it dips or dip? The idea seems to be it's the, the one who has been dipping or um, the one who dipped, looking at it as a whole action, which really would not have necessarily answered the question for the disciples. Does that make sense? Um, if we're all, if all of us had a big meal at my house and we're all eating using forks and knives and we're drinking and somebody's like, all right, we're going to play a special game. I want, ev I want the one person in here who used their fork to stand up. Like everybody's going to stand up. And so, so this is kind of like what Jesus does a lot of times is he doesn't always answer the question directly. He'll speak sometimes in mysteries, and he wants them to think through. Almost certainly what Jesus is doing is he wants them to examine their own hearts. Is it really me? Is it? Because who else is going to betray Jesus? Peter, and everybody else is going to run away. So in one sense, all of them are going to abandon him, but we know that the particular person that Jesus is talking about is, is specified in verse 24. The Son of Man indeed goes just as has been written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. I, I don't know if you can have a more damning description in all of Scripture than for Jesus, the Son of God, to say to you, it'd be better if you had never been born. This implies that Judas is completely responsible for his actions. We always have to keep this in mind. That when the Bible talks about prediction of prophecy, it never, never, never indicates that people are not responsible for their actions. This is the doctrine of divine compatibilism. That because God is so much bigger and so much wiser than us, there is what the Westminster Confessions calls first and secondary causation. God is the first cause of all things. Jesus dying on the cross was not an accident. It was not plan B. And yet all of the people that were implicated in bringing Jesus to the cross, including Judas who betrayed him, including the Jewish leadership who plotted against him, including Pilate and the Roman guards and everybody else, they all are responsible for their actions, but they just fell backwards into God's divine plan, right? In fact, hold your finger right there and turn over to Acts. Let's look at Acts Let's look at two verses in Acts. Acts chapter 2, first of all. This is a very difficult concept for us, especially with our Western philosophy, where we just think that human beings are the beginning and end all of, of what happens in life, right? It's all about free will. It's all about our choice. And everybody's life is determined by your choices. The Bible says yes and no. You are responsible for your actions, but you are not somebody who's just off kind of doing your own thing with no other causes. So look at verse 22 to 23. This is chapter 2 of Acts. Men of Israel, this is Peter speaking at Pentecost. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in the midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered, that idea of delivered means delivered up to the cross, 
by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by what? Lawless hands and crucified and put to death. God put him on the cross. You took him with lawless hands and put him to death. How in the world can Peter say that those two phrases in the exact same verse? Because it's true. The cross was not plan B. It was planned by God, but yet people had lawless hands. That means they sinned in putting Jesus on the cross. God is the first cause of all things. Human beings are completely responsible for their actions. God can judge them for their actions. Just like God called Babylon, or he calls Babylon to attack Assyria, right? And then Babylon comes down and judges Israel for their sins, and then God comes along and judges the Babylonians. God has the right to do that. Read the book of Habakkuk. That's what all of Habakkuk is about. What's Habakkuk about? You guys, you guys remember reading it? Habakkuk is basically, Habakkuk's like, God, why aren't you going to punish your people? They're so evil. God says, I am. I'm bringing Babylon down to punish them. Oh, man. How can you take evil people to punish evil people? Because God can punish a bad nation with a worse one. Let me say that again. God can punish a bad nation with a worse one. So he says, God, that's not right for you to use Babylon. They're terrible people. God says, oh, don't worry. I'm going to punish Babylon. And then he just scratches his head and he says, you're God. I'm not. <laughs> and he, and that's, that's, the, that's the answer. Look at Acts 4. We see the same concept in a prayer a little while later. Uh, yeah, look at 4, verse 27. All the Christians are filled with the Spirit, and they go to prayer. Verse 27, For truly against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod, the Jewish leader, Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, were gathered together to... What would you expect to be the next couple words? to do all kinds of evil, to sin in causing Christ to be crucified, which is all true. But what does it say? To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. That's divine compatibilism. People are completely responsible for their actions. God can hold them accountable for their actions. And yet there's a first cause of all things, and that is God himself. And so all that to say that Judas is completely responsible for his actions, even though he fulfilled scripture. Do we understand this completely as finite human beings? Shake your head and say, no. We just believe it because it's in the Bible and God is bigger than us. If, if we could understand everything about God, we'd be God ourselves. And so that is kind of what transpires in the first part of the Passover. Now we get to Passover 2.0, verse 26. The Passover, as in the Jewish sense, has now come to an end. This is the last real Passover. For a little while, you're going to still see Jews do some semblance of the Passover, but it has no more of the same meaning uh, because the Messiah has come. He's died. He's been resurrected. Jesus gives us the Passover 2.0, that is communion, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples, said, take, eat, this is my body. This is my body. Um, we would say as good Protestants, 
that this must be a metaphor. This is my body because where was Jesus at the time that he said, this is my body? He's right there. He's in the room. His body is right here. He says, this is my body. He's not denying the fact that his physical body is right there in the room. And so it must be a metaphor. This is my body. So um, then he says, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. So if you didn't like wine, tough luck. All of you must eat of this. If you didn't like the unleavened bread, tough luck. Eat it, um, drink it. All of you, verse 28, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Not all the translations say new, but that's definitely implied. This is a different covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So there's a different covenant now from the old covenant. And this is going to be for the remission of sins. It's going to replace the sacrificial system that was done to commemorate and point forward to Christ. Now I'm giving you my blood in this cup. Um, that's given for the remission of sins, verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is the last time I'm going to drink of this until we come into the kingdom that's described as my Father's kingdom. This is one of the indications that, quote-unquote, the kingdom is future, not present. Jesus is not drinking of the fruit of the vine right now. He's waiting for the future in order to drink of it. Then verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So singing a hymn would have been part of the Passover, and it was also part of the early church communion service. So that's that's the text. We've got Jesus predicting that he's going to die um, after the Passover, we've got plot 1.0 by the chief priest. We've got pouring of oil of Mary to prepare Christ for his death. We've got plot 2.0 of Judas. Then we have the preparation for the Passover. We have the Passover proper. And then we have Passover 2.0, i.e. the Lord's Supper. Uh-huh. Totally, yeah. No, I think when you compare um, all the Gospels, it appears that, G- that Judas would have left after verse 25. So um, I think we can say pretty safely that Judas was not there for the, lo- the bread and the cup. Um, he was there for the Passover, proper Passover 1.0. Um, but then once he's handed the sop, so to speak, the devil enters him. Jesus says, what you do, go do quickly. He gets up. And then if you look at John, there's a whole lot of discussion and teaching that happens after that portion of John 13 that Judas is not around for. He doesn't hear anything about the vine and the branch. He doesn't hear anything about the Holy Spirit coming. He doesn't hear anything about how I'm going to guide you into all truth. Um, He does not overhear the high priestly prayer, even though he's in the high priestly prayer, right? The section where it talks about the son of perdition. I've I've kept, I haven't lost anybody except for the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled and so on. The next time we see Jesus, it's when he shows up with a bunch of troops and gives Jesus a kiss and, uh, and betrays him, which is befuddling 
because remember in John 18, we won't have time to look at this morning, John 18, they all come walking up with their clubs. Jesus walks out, says, whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus is Nazareth. He says, I am. And what do they all do? They all fall over. And then Judas still gets up and betrays the Son of God. After even that miraculous um, display. So let's let's talk about some points here for um, reflection and application. Let me see if I can get to this. Yeah, so for prayer, consideration, repentance, and obedience. Um, you know, I, you hear it said a lot of times, you know, if you're out evangelizing, you talk to people about the gospel, people say, well, if God would just show up and appear before me, and do some miracle, then I would believe. I don't buy that for a second. How do I know that? Because God did show up. Jesus walked the planet for 33 years. He was with these 12 disciples, intimately relating with them for three years. And yet you have a guy named Judas Iscariot who clearly would have known that Jesus is a pretty special individual. And yet his heart was so hardened. He's sitting there at the table with Jesus who washes his feet, puts him in a place of honor, gives him the sop, and then he still goes out and betrays the Son of God. At that person, and part of what we see here is it's interesting on the pages of scripture how that choices we make are never choices we make alone. We may make certain choices on the front end alone, but eventually Satan is always around. Satan and his demons. What Judas does here and what we see, I, I, I don't think everybody gets the number one de demon, Satan's personal attention. But Judas got his personal attention because it had to do with Jesus Christ. Judas hardens his heart, probably just like Pharaoh. We see a parallel between the Passover and communion. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. <clears throat> Judas hardens his heart. Satan enters in. He goes out and is satanically inspired to kiss the Son of God and to move against him. And, and so I think you know, as you're as you're gospelizing people, as you're evangelizing people, and people are saying, "Oh, if God would only show up," one of, one of my responses is, "He did," and they killed him. And you know what? Jesus is going to come back, and the second coming, He will destroy His enemies, set up a perfect kingdom. There will be no atheists on the entire planet during the millennial period. You know that? There will be no agnostics because all you got to do is go over to Jerusalem. You can meet Jesus face to face and he will reign in perfection for a thousand years then the devil will be released at the end of a thousand years and what's going to happen there will be untold thousands that will join and align themselves with the devil and try to fight against Christ why does that happen what does that establish it establishes God's righteousness to judge that even given the perfect environment even looking at the Son of God face to face, there's no doubts that there is one God. Mankind will still every time rebel against Almighty God. 
there's some sickness in our heart where we say, I'm going to rebel against that guy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Noah. Adam, Noah, totally. Yeah, so Adam and Eve, they're put out. The one difference with Adam and Eve, though, is they're, they're in un, uh, untested innocence. So they're put out into the garden. So they don't have a sin nature yet. They're not depraved yet. So they are in a little bit of a different category because there was nothing inclining them other than the temptation of the devil to sin. So theoretically, there was nothing in their nature yet that drove them towards that decision. It's a good point. Yeah, they didn't have the sin nature and they still chose against God. Yeah. And I think par- part of what it, the question that it begs is how do any of us get saved given those types of statements? It's only by the grace of God that any of our eyes are opened and we're able to be humbled. Remember, was it Second uh, Timothy chapter 2? We're, we're supposed to like be very humble as we dialogue with people that are in opposition to us. Why? Why should we not quarrel and be humble with people? Because they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And we're waiting if God perhaps may grant them repentance so that they can come to their senses. We always have to keep that in mind when we're talking to unsaved family members or people at work or friends. Is they're in the same state that we were in. They're in the domain of darkness. They've been taken captive. They think they're free. They're exercising their will, but their will has been controlled by the devil. They don't know that. And so when we're dialoguing with people, we want to be very patient because we don't know when's God going to wake them up. Is God going to wake them up? Um, Are they going to be set free? Will they come to their senses? So none of us in this room can say that we're born again and following Jesus because we're smart enough, we're good enough, and people like us. No, none of us have, have fallen into that category. Yeah, Steve. Yes. 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 Yeah, so Steve's talking about, look at us as even believers, how sin still clings to us, though we've been delivered. How, how powerful is sin that the Bible describes it as crucified, and yet it still rummages around within the confines of our body? Um, and yet, so the unbeliever, how how you know, how much has their will and their desires been totally overtaken by uh, sin and, and the devil. And so we have every reason to be very compassionate on people that we're talking to, whether it's family members, even, you know, there's lots, there's several folks in our church here where you, you've grown, you've raised your kids and they've gone off to, um, to not serve Christ. Well, guess what? Um, not everybody's children are promised to come to know Christ. Look at God. God raised up Adam and Eve. They rebelled. 
God's sitting there having this conversation with Cain. He's talking to Cain like a rebellious teenager. Am I my brother's keeper? And I don't know if, if I was the Lord, I'd been like, you're out of here, dude. Instead, he puts a mark on his head and protects him for the rest of his life. Um, all the examples of people that who do respond and then don't respond and so on and so forth. Ultimately, I think we, we do have every reason to be compassionate and we need to speak the truth, but we're ultimately waiting for the Lord to awaken our friends and family members to the gospel. And what is the thing that God is using to awaken people? It's the gospel. So as we open up our mouths with compassion to speak the gospel in humility, the Lord can take that and, and use it. And he does. So we see 11 out of the 12 end up following the Lord, even though they all scatter, right? Like a bunch of cockroaches the night in the garden. And then Peter goes off and denies him. What do you think Peter was thinking when he denied the Lord? Because remember, nobody has any clue why Judas got up from the table and left. I, 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 I really didn't think about this till this week, but I, I have a suspicion that Peter probably thought he was the one, right? Because everybody's asking, is it I, is it I? He didn't know what Jesus had said to John. He didn't know what the sop meant when Jesus handed it to Judas. He was also ignorant when Judas got up and left. He, he was one of the ones that was like, oh, maybe he went out to give some money to the poor. Because we were all upset about the poor a few minutes ago or a little while ago. So then Jesus or Peter goes running off. He, he runs out into the darkness too, starts to fall along, then denies Christ three times. What must have he have been thinking? I'm the one. I'm the one. That was to deny him. I betrayed Christ. And so he goes off and he's crying. And you can just imagine, you know, maybe in the midst of his tears, at some point, maybe he, it, he starts to recall Jesus' words in Luke. Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you return, you're going to strengthen my sheep. Maybe at some point the Holy Spirit brought that back to his mind because he would have heard Jesus spoke that right to him, remember? And the disciples also overheard Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. So Jesus would have heard, or Peter would have heard Jesus praying for him. So at some point, perhaps that came back. But we know that there is a point in the book of John, the resurrection, or they haven't seen Jesus resurrected yet, or it's kind of a little confusing the order of everything. But at some point, you know, Peter's probably still a little discouraged, still thinking about his failures. And he turns to his buddies and he says, well, I'm going fishing. Right? What's that basically? I'm just going back to my old job. I have totally messed this up. I am not worthy to be called a disciple. Whatever Jesus was talking about, about this apostleship thing. It clearly isn't me. I'm going fishing. And a couple, at least a few of the guys say, and we're going with you. And so they just go out, right? And they're out there fishing. And all of a sudden, you guys know the story. John looks out and sees Jesus on the shore. And he says, it's the Lord. What does Peter do? Jumps into the the water and just swims and Jesus has already made breakfast. You know how Jesus probably making breakfast as the post-resurrected Christ. He's just like breakfast, right? And um, and then you have that whole scene 
of do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And so the Lord just wooing Peter back and then and then the opening scenes of Acts as we're gonna see are just amazing how the how that just had to build Peter's faith. Here I just completely messed up. I I deserved exactly what Judas got. But Christ had compassion on me and here he is appearing to me. Who am I? And you can just feel the humility of Peter there on that scene on the beach. And what does the Bible say? God resists the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. So now this grace starts just dumping out on Peter. And now he's able to submit to God, resist the devil, the devil flees from him. He's off like doing this crazy ministry that I'm sure he would have never thought in a million years that he'd be involved in. And that's what God worked that humility. And that's kind of my final challenge to all of us is is where are we all out at right now as we speak this morning with that with the grace humility quotient that grace humility quotient if it is true that God resists the proud he clearly resisted Judas he clearly resisted Pharaoh and those guys got some just terrible you know we're talking horror film type of treatment right but what I've noticed in my life is my pride might be this big, but all I got to do is this much humility and God wants to dump his grace on me. God's not asking me to get this much humility. I, I, I can tell you so many times in my life I've got this much pride and then by God's grace, I take a little tiny baby step of humility and it's like, boom, God's grace starts coming down. And now I'm like, Lord, why are you so good to this prideful man? Because that's the kind of Savior he is. He is so kind and compassionate to thousands, right? He will be by no means clear the guilty, but he is kind. He keeps his covenant love with thousands and thousands. And so I just want to encourage you this morning that you may, a lot of us, one of the things uh, my wife's been reminding me about is it seems like a lot of our sins and troubles can boil down to pride and hopelessness. One of those two. It's either we've lost humility or we're losing hope. And um, and I know I kind of default towards the the lack of humility side. But you know what's the cool thing about that? Is that's a prayer that you absolutely know that God wants to answer. If you say, Lord... Humble me. Help me confess my pride. Help, help me walk in humility. Do you think that's a prayer that God wants to answer? You know, when Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father, he'll give it to you. Do you think that fits in that category? Lord, give me humility. I, I'm absolutely convinced of it. You know, there's other prayers that I don't know that God has been necessarily wants to answer. Give me season tickets to Angel Stadium next year. I'd love to have season tickets just arrive in my mailbox. I don't know if the Lord's really interested in answering that prayer. All the time I would waste just at Angel Stadium all the time instead of doing sermon prep, right? That's not really, I don't think, God's design. Um, but if I say, Lord, humble me. Help me confess my sin. I feel so much pride right now. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. I don't want to confess my sin to this person or that person. Does God want to answer that? Absolutely. He'll answer that prayer. Well, let's go Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And then um, next week, um, we'll be getting in. Well, no, wait. 
I don't want to um, deceive you guys. Next week, there is no Sunday school. The week after that, we'll get into lesson two, then lesson three. So that's December 30th, January 6th. Um, so let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this amazing text of scripture and just your wisdom. Um, what's befuddling to us is that you knew all along that you were walking right towards the cross and yet you went willingly. When Judas and these troops show up, you could have obliterated them and yet you just turned yourself over for us. You gave yourself up to these sinners that were going to put you on the cross and died for the very sins of the men who arrested you. And so we thank you, Lord, that you did humble yourself, that you came in your first advent to save, not to judge, so that any who believe could be saved. We pray, Father, that you would grant us the humility that you gave to Peter, and that while he did deny you and run from you, Lord, you brought about in him tears of repentance. Lord, you pursued him when he had just decided to go back to his old job. Lord, thank you so much for the grace that we see. Uh, we also just pray, Father, that you would protect us and our loved ones from the fate of Judas. Judas made clear choices to align himself with the devil rather than the savior of the world. Lord, may you protect us from aligning ourselves with the devil. Even as Christians, we know that we could fall into the fate of Peter where at different points we could align ourselves with the will of the devil where Jesus would say, get thee behind me and we would find ourselves being resisted by God as we well in pride. But keep us low before you. Keep us in your hands. We thank you, Jesus, for the ways that you have prayed, not just for the disciples, but for all who would believe in them. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, that well, it's hard for us to understand how that you've made your children double-clutched in your hands and unpluckable by the devil. We pray all this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. <clears throat>